Hello and welcome to this LSE online event. My name is Alistair Maguire and I am Professor of Health Economics and Head of Department in the Department of Health Policy at the LSE. I'm extremely pleased to announce today's speaker for our departmental annual, annual lecture. Our speaker is Lord Jim O'Neill. He's uh, currently Chair of Chatham House and he spent a long part of his career in Goldman Sachs as joint head of research initially, then the company's chief economist and chairman of asset management division. He's also served as a chair for the City Growth Commission and commercial secretary to the Treasury. Lord O'Neill was created a life peer in 2015 and currently serves as a crossbench member of the House of Lords. He has an honorary professorship in economics from the University of Man Manchester and honorary degrees from the University of Sheffield, University of London and City University London. He received his PhD from the University of Surrey, I believe it was on OPEC uh, funding or financing rather, and he's now a visiting professor there at the University of Surrey. In the context of today's discussion, Jim chaired the review on antimicrobial resistance from 2014 to 16, and he also recently joined the EU WHO Commission on COVID-19. Um, some housekeeping rules, first of all, before I turn to Jim. First of all, those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. It's an online event that's being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast to uh, those in the future. As usual, there's going to be a chance for individuals to put questions to any of us following the presentation. And to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. The questions will be submitted to me as the chair, and I'll pose them uh, as many as possible to uh, Jim himself. Please let us know your name and affiliation as uh, we're particularly keen to know where you've come from. So diseases present us with obvious healthcare costs. There's significant economic costs associated with illness at all. And the COVID pandemic is a clear reminder of this. Uh, we've amassed about 19.5 trillion US dollars of global debt as a result Hundreds of thousands of businesses are filing for bankruptcy. And of course, we've had over two and a half million deaths attributable to COVID. Obviously, investing in more health care systems and disease prevention, including the use of modern technologies and diagnostics, will allow us to cope better with future healthcare challenges, but possibly reduce the cost of maintaining and responding to ongoing health care. So against that background, I'm extremely delighted to welcome Jim here to discuss the need to embed health policy into broader economic thinking and reflect on his experience in uh, antimicrobial resistance and his observations on COVID-19 more generally. So now I'm delighted to hand over to you, Jim, to take us through this. Thank you very much, Alastair. It is such a huge honour uh, and privilege to be with you, and I'm, I'm very uh, flattered and appreciative of the fact that you asked me to do this for you. I, I'm, I, I hope that I can be seen and heard, or probably some of you prefer if you couldn't see me, but I'm, certainly to hear me. Uh, I'm now going to uh, try and uh, share some slides with you, and I, I hope to spend not much more than 30 minutes going through a few slides 
to illustrate some of the important uh, points uh, about uh, many aspects of uh, the health challenge that this pandemic, of course, has shone a light on for the whole world. Uh, so with that in mind, let me uh, try to make sure I can do that straight away. There we go. I, I think uh, you should be able to see uh, the first of this chart uh, or my, head, my title chart very clearly. Arstu is showing me so. So uh, yes, so let me, let me proceed straight away so I can hopefully uh, leave plenty of time for, uh, for questions and answers. And what I, what I plan to do is initially, uh, as you can see here with uh, my, the idea, what I'm describing as ideas, uh, in the spirit of somebody that has spent uh, over 30 years in the world of finance and international economics uh, and quite used to those kind of crises, uh, I learned a long time ago the idea that one should never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, and that's sort of the spirit of how I'm going to deliver uh, a lot of my uh, next thoughts. Uh, and I am going to initially uh, focus on things that uh, I learned uh, about uh, the world of health and the world of health economics and, and how to position it in the world of international economics and finance. Uh, but for those that have joined who are only too familiar with me with my AMR hat on, you will be relieved to know that I'm not just going to show you all those slides from a few years ago. I, I will use a couple of them, uh, but I'm going to uh, use it to position uh, the context of uh, this pandemic including uh, uh, the work of the Monty Commission, which very importantly, uh, and rather fortuitously, actually today uh, has published some of its uh, early interim recommendations, uh, partly as an idea uh, to socialize uh, our thinking, but also as an early way to try and influence policymakers. And I'll, I'll get into that in a, in a short while. So sticking with this uh, first picture you can see, as I've said, uh, I have long since thought uh, that crises do happen. Uh, and whatever I or anybody else is going to suggest as a result of this current crisis, uh, we are going to get more crises in the future. It is unfortunately uh, a fact uh, of life. Uh, and my view is the best thing that one can do is to try as hard as possible to make sure the next crisis or future crises aren't going to repeat the same one that you've experienced, and that hopefully, if we do some smart things, we can mitigate uh, to make them less painful than the extraordinary uh, damage this one has caused, that Alistair gave a, a very brief but eloquent uh, summary of the sad uh, health and uh, human and economic consequences. In that regard, uh, the second point is uh, uh, I also have learned, and I think it's particularly apt uh, in this crisis, that the circumstances that were already prevailing in society are particularly important things to think about uh, as to when the crisis has struck. Uh, and uh, in this regard, let me be uh, more uh, precise than I've put on the screen. Uh, as part of treating health as a much more central economic policy issue, uh, the circumstances in which we found this crisis happening about a year ago is, of course, uh, with remarkable uh, and, and justifiable treatments about the equality of economic growth. 
whether there is a bigger role in society for the government, uh, whether that just be here or elsewhere. Uh, and perhaps one could say, uh, as many international economists have thought about for a long, long time, whether we could uh, all learn to be more Scandinavian, one might call it, uh, especially in societies which have a lot more people living in them uh, than the successful Scandinavian countries. And as I'll come back to talk about at the end, uh, especially as it relates to the world of business and capitalism and how it operates, is there a greater uh, uh, purpose uh, than just profit and whether we can have a greater focus on profit with a broader purpose? Uh, and uh, as you can see, and it follows uh, on the slide, and I won't concentrate on it uh, here, but I'm going to get into it in a minute. Uh, the AMR review, which I've often described as perhaps the single most interesting thing I've ever done in my professional career, uh, certainly educated me that you cannot, and we must not, uh, divorce health from economics. And as you'll uh, hear more from me in a second, one of our challenges and certainly uh, a problem uh, as it relates to AMR still and this pandemic, uh, is, of course, uh, that many people have often thought health is simply the preserve of health ministries, and it has nothing to do with economics and finance. And goodness me, has this uh, pandemic proved that that is a ridiculous way to think. Uh, and it, as you'll see in a second, I believe it has proved many of the aspects that we raised in our AMR review. And therefore, as I said at the start, uh, and I want to emphasize again here, and will come up repeatedly, uh, we have a huge opportunity to use the scale of this crisis and the understandable attention it's getting from everybody all over the world to put in place a better framework to help us manage the future. So let me turn briefly to the AMR review. And uh, there, there are probably three or four specific things as to why I do want to start with this, and I've already touched on them. Uh, the first one to repeat again, uh, being introduced uh, to the world of antimicrobial resistance was my own personal introduction to the world of international health. Uh, and I, uh, as I've often jokingly said, I couldn't even pronounce antimicrobial resistance uh, six years ago, never mind understand what it was. Uh, but it certainly taught me and it educated me that uh, in, in terms of building a sustainable, better global economic envi uh, environment for all, uh, one had to treat health uh, right in the center of international economic thinking. And as I'm sure many people know, it, it was commissioned by our prime minister at the time, David Cameron, although it was an independent review, and crucially, uh, it had a global economic remit. Uh, the other three reasons why I want to uh, give you a bit of a flavor of it here is, uh, secondly, uh, as you'll see in a second, and I'm sure many of you are aware, uh, we tried to demonstrate just how colossal uh, the economic consequences could be for the world uh, if nothing was done about AMR. And, uh, of course, uh, to many people, uh, understandably, this was a conceptual uh, uh, forecast of what could happen in the future, and a number of people thought, well, this is just scaremongering because these things don't happen because we are so well prepared uh, in health. And obviously, we have now seen with the 2.6 million people uh, estimated to have died already from COVID-19 that these things are not just conceptual. They are things that do sadly happen. Uh, the third thing in that regard, I, I, of course, being so closely associated with AMR, 
uh, and in the spirit of never letting a crisis go to waste, I feel a strong uh, personal need to make sure that AMR and its challenges are not overlooked uh, by the understandable focus on solving COVID-19 and all the consequences that go with it. And then fourthly, as I'll perhaps very briefly highlight with the next couple of slides, in fact, uh, rather luckily, I don't think that has been the case. And I'll get back into that in a second. And has helped actually with some specific parts of the AMR challenge, including our, all, uh, our whole understandable focus on better hygiene and sanitation. Uh, it is almost definitely helping uh, to solve some of the underlying challenges with that. Uh, here is one of the uh, charts uh, that became so well known all over the world as a result of, or at least in the world of international health uh, and international health economics from our AMR review, uh, because we estimated our, in our initial paper by trying to simulate a world, a world uh, in which uh, the crisis of antimicrobial resistance became bigger. And by the way, for those of you not uh, overly familiar with it, in the middle of that uh, is the growing resistance to antibiotics. That is not the only part of it, but it is almost definitely the biggest part. And in, back in 2015, uh, from the, the gathering of data that we could put together, nobody else had done it at the time on a global basis, but we estimated roughly that around 700,000 people then were dying every year from some kind of uh, illness related to antimicrobial resistance. And uh, why it became partly so well known, we suggested that if nothing was done to prevent the growth of this problem, uh, by 2050, it could be as many as 10 million people a year. Uh, and as it relates to uh, different things, you can see uh, the kind of scale of the number of people that could die from that relative to other uh, rather well-known uh, everyday forms of uh, unfortunate loss of life. Uh, and with it, uh, and at the center of uh, a reoccurring theme I'll come back to and, and now highlight as crucial parts of how the Monty Commission is approaching its work on COVID-19, and certainly at the center of my contribution, is, as I've already touched on, is to not just treat this as a health issue, but to regard it as a finance uh, and economic issue. And the other big number that we showed from our uh, commission uh, or the AMR review is that we didn't do something to stop 10 million people dying a year by 2050. The accumulated economic loss or the foregone uh, economic growth that otherwise could have happened uh, would, would uh, uh, amass or accumulate to $100 trillion over those 35 years. Uh, and as a, a rather savvy uh, business person pointed out to me, sadly, uh, for my purpose or my review team's purpose about a month after our final recommendations, uh, for the 29 interventions that we recommended that would require about $42 billion worth of investment, uh, that would represent a total return of something like 2,500% in terms of making sure that this economic loss would not happen. Um, Three more slides, then I'm going to progress on to the relevance more of this in the con and the context of uh, COVID-19. Um, one of the many reasons are, uh, uh, as to why I say that it's the most interesting thing I've ever done professionally in my life uh, is the challenge of antimicrobial resistance is multifaceted and involves many different separate areas, all of which uh, have some linkage to each other. 
uh, and we try we try to approach the whole of our uh, review uh, with focus on these ten different areas. And the twenty nine specific recommendations we came up with at the end of the process in uh, mid twenty sixteen uh, covered all of these ten areas. And crucially, as I'll now show, uh, I would describe uh, five of them as being focusing at it as an economist as a, as demand reducing interventions, and three of them as supply-boosting interventions, uh, with two of them, crucially, and very pertinent to the COVID challenge, vaccines actually straddling them both. And the five demand-reducing interventions are public awareness, sanitation and hygiene, uh, the, the excessive use of antibiotics in agriculture and the environment, uh, surveillance, and rapid diagnostics. And the three pure supply boosting interventions uh, would be uh, the need for more human capital or specialist people researching in the space. Uh, with that, uh, greater uh, innovation. And thirdly, of course, uh, the need for a whole supply of new effective antibiotics and other forms of antimicrobials. Uh, and as that translates into a standard uh, approach of an economist, uh, this is a classic uh, demand uh, curve, which has uh, uh, quantity and price. And what one conceptually wants to do by uh, approaching those five different uh, areas is to shift the demand curve permanently to the left. And at the same time, with the three uh, supply interventions, you want to permanently shift uh, the supply curve to the left. Now, uh, those of you that have uh, experience of this particular issue, or more broadly, experience of the international pharmaceutical industry or the general uh, health uh, world, uh, and indeed the world of international business, might immediately recognize another reason why it was particularly stimulating and challenging to do, because the last thing that international pharmaceutical companies want to focus on is things where... Uh, one is trying to reduce the demand of uh, and at the same time trying to boost the supply. Uh, by definition, as with uh, any uh, uh, self-focused business, the whole ambition in life is to increase the amount of supply uh, and to have as much demand as possible and especially at as high a price as possible. But to solve uh, antimicrobial resistance, you cannot have those things together. And that's partly why it was, uh, it was and remains so challenging uh, and why uh, it was so important. Let me come back to uh, charts to, to, to come to the, to the 10 uh, interrelated areas of uh, focus and interventions. Uh, and now as I go into now, uh, translate some of what I've learned from this into how one should approach uh, solving COVID-19 and moving to a, a better world where we can deal with these uh, inevitable challenges in the future to focus briefly more on uh, vaccines and an international coalition for action. And what is so important about those, these two is, of course, they straddle both the demand reducing and supply boosting. And if I just focus for now on the role of vaccines in its broadest context, it surprised us when we were uh, going through the uh, AMR review thinking process 
that there had not been more attention in the narrow world uh, of AMR policy recommendations about the really powerful role that vaccines could play. Uh, because stating the obvious, if one could find more useful vaccines for dealing with antibiotic resistance, for example, in the world of TB uh, around uh, especially the emerging world, uh, and of the 10 million future deaths we highlighted, uh, at least a quarter of those will be uh, because of uh, drug-resistant TB. But if you could find more effective vaccines to deal with TB, you would not need uh, the drugs that are being used uh, very aggressively these days for trying to uh, keep people alive and uh, improve the health of those that are suffering uh, from TB. And as I'm sure many people uh, are aware, uh, one of the specific problems in the emerging world uh, about antimicrobial resistance uh, is the rather worrying accelerating growth of drug-resistant TB. And so the role of vaccines are exceptionally powerful, in my opinion, uh, in terms of reducing the need uh, for inappropriate use of antibiotics, not least because if we have success, more successful vaccines for more successful purposes, then of course you wouldn't need to even think about using antibiotics. And linking it to what I said at the start, Alistair, I do have a strong suspicion, and I've seen uh, a little bit of evidence. Uh, here we are one year later with the remarkable uh, good news about uh, the discovery of uh, a number of vaccines that work, uh, that as these get rolled out, then uh, our, our medical uh, industry and professions around the world will not be using as many antibiotics to deal, in, a, in some cases, perhaps inappropriately, uh, with some of the uh, health management challenges uh, of COVID-19. Because especially, uh, perhaps I should have said this later, as as all the health experts here will know, uh, you can't use antibiotics for dealing with viral infections, uh, just as you can't use vaccines that are uh, designed uh, to deal with viral infections uh, to combat a bacterial challenge. But uh, amongst the reasons why we have these problems is that frequently antibiotics are used as some kind of miracle suite, uh, and people have this false belief that you can use them to solve anything that we want. <clears throat> and then it follows uh, from much of what I've said, and of course, critical uh, to the challenge of rolling out these wonderful vaccines, including as we get more coming on stream in coming weeks and months, uh, to everybody all over the world, we need proper concerted international action, both in having a more effective rollout of useful drugs, as it be in the case of uh, antimicrobial resistance, and of course, specifically and urgently uh, right now uh, for some of these vaccines to especially the lower income parts of the world. And uh, we need international coalition for action in order to make sure that we can put in place a better system of health governance and health policies including, as I'll now turn to, into the centre of international economic policy thinking. And with that, let me now turn directly to the Monty Commission. 
Uh, Alistair uh, touched on it in his generous intro introduction. Uh, let me just emphasize, actually, uh, that this is not uh, uh, just an EU commission. It's actually for the whole uh, Europe-wide area that is covered by the WHO. So it's the 53 countries uh, that geographically transcend from Iceland uh, all the way through to the ex-Soviet uh, republics. Uh, and the commission chaired by ex-Italian prime minister and seasoned uh, international economic thinker Mario Monti on coming up with proposals that will make the world a better place, not just because of health challenges, but with health positioned at the center. Uh, and here is a brief summary uh, of the ideas that we have highlighted, I emphasize, in our, in, in our initial uh, recommendations that I said earlier have been published today. Uh, the commission is lasting until uh, October of this year, and we will be refining and doing more in-depth research on some of these ideas, as well as no doubt pursuing others. And I'm now going to uh, spend the rest of my formal time, which will be about another uh, five to 10 minutes, uh, highlighting some of these crucial things. Uh, and in particular, uh, what I'd like to emphasize here is that these are initial ideas uh, and, and none of them on their own uh, are likely to uh, ensure that we're never going to have uh, any future pandemics happening again. Uh, nor, for that matter, would they necessarily, on their own, uh, deal with the challenge of antimicrobial resistance. But in the spirit and, and context of what I said earlier, I think they would certainly put us, if done collectively, in a much, much stronger place of minimizing both the health and the economic damage uh, that would come from it. And if we do them smartly enough, they might indeed allow us to have uh, a higher level of productivity in our global health systems uh, and allow us to have more effective and efficient use of money rather than what sadly typically ends up being generally the case and has been witnessed during COVID-19 is that policymakers wait until a health crisis has happened and then throw very, very large sums of money at it in order to solve it. It is not very sensible economic policy thinking. Uh, and in that regard, let me just quickly go through these. <clears throat> and I'll come back to uh, a couple of the ones that I think are particularly important from, from my perspective and my background to emphasize. So the first one to repeat what I've already made clear, one needs to treat health as an economic as well as a, a social and health issue. Uh, secondly, we raised the possibility uh, of uh, considering some kind of new entity to replace the WHO. And certainly, and to their credit, given it was the WHO's European branch that established our commission, uh, they are allowing us to raise the possibility of, at a minimum, uh, introducing reforms at the WHO to make it more effective uh, but as I say here, and I'll perhaps come back to touch on, uh, particularly in the context of the nature of modern pandemics and antimicrobial resistance, perhaps the WHO needs to be uh, broadened out and certainly at a minimum to work more closely with uh, two other crucial 
international bodies that have their own responsibilities for health. Uh, the FAO, which is the Food and Agricultural Organization, think about it in the context of this pandemic. Many people frequently criticize uh, almost daily still the WHO, but if this pandemic originated from the transfer uh, from an animal into a human being, do they actually have the formal responsibility for putting in place a mechanism to deal with that better? Possibly not. Probably not. And then the third one, uh, especially as it relates to challenges of the environment and plants, uh, is the OIE. Uh, and I am uh, open-minded in thinking that perhaps, ultimately, uh, whilst one uh, aware of the challenges facing each of the three already, one might not be averse to the conceptual idea of actually merging them all into one organization. So, in fact, we would truly have a World One Health or WOHO organization. Uh, a, a, a separate idea, and one that I feel particularly uh, persuaded by, and I'm very pleased that Mario has brought our commission early to recommending this publicly, is the, is the concept of a public stability board uh, that health would be at the center of uh, that would be introduced under the control and guidance of the leading uh, group of economic powerhouses in the world, the so-called G20. Uh, I suspect many of you on this call will not be overly familiar with something that abbreviates to the FSB, uh, but is, uh, stands for the Financial Stability Board, that crucially was introduced on the back of the 2008 global financial crisis uh, under the control of the, and leadership of the Group of 20 that is designed to, sure, uh, to ensure that the world financial system has enough and uh, uh, adequate capital in order to make sure that we don't ever face the kind of problem that we nearly did uh, without the dramatic policy response that took place in 2008. And what uh, the members of the Commission have dreamt up between us uh, and the leadership of it has embraced and included in its recommendations is why not actually broaden that out and have at the center of the body which is the most important, at least in terms of a relatively modest number of representative countries that dominate the world economy, a body that is responsible for ensuring we deal with the challenge of goods that are in the interests of the global public and not just those uh, inside the economic system. As I'll go on to uh, in a second more, in a little bit more detail, uh, four and five and six all relate very closely to each other. Uh, but I want to sort of take your mind as I uh, briefly explain this uh, to sort of 40,000 feet uh, and thinking about the horrific stories we all read and hear about and watch in our news uh, and data feeds and uh, various social media challenges about the amount of government spending and the amount of debt uh, that has been created as a result of trying to minimize the damage uh, of this horrific pandemic. And to somebody like myself that has been steeped in international economic uh, conventional thinking for the past uh, 35 years or so, it is truly quite remarkable because we have managed to blow every conventional form uh, of conservative economic thinking 
that one would imagine. And for example, at the core of that, as I'm sure a number of people uh, are aware, uh, the so-called stability pact that lies at the heart of the uh, agreements behind uh, the single currency for the Eurozone uh, was introduced with the belief that over time, no member country should have uh, a debt-to-GDP ratio of more than 60% of GDP. Uh, and of course, many European countries were way in excess of that even before uh, the 2008 crisis, never mind this one. But now we have a position that even those most conservative and most fiscally responsible countries have blown way beyond those levels. And last time I looked at the financial markets, which is about an hour ago, uh, the world financial system seems to be coping in a way that economic textbooks uh, never suggested one should. And so in that regard, what links all of these uh, recommendations together is we are calling for a very open-minded and a much-needed fresh approach as to how all governments, the UK government and others, actually now think about how they spend money. And in particular, to distinguish from an accounting perspective much more clearly on what they spend on investments and what they spend on maintenance or what economists would describe as consumption. Uh, and for example, as it would relate to health, although this should apply to all government departments, it would allow a government to distinguish between what it needs to spend on instruments to, su to support the ongoing research for fresh vaccines, future vaccines, future antibiotics, and not to be competing with the money that the health department has to spend as part of its ongoing daily life uh, to support the primary and secondary care done by our hospitals and our local surgeries. And that's what this next chart shows uh, as simply and as clearly as, as I, I've, I've managed to, to dream up. Uh, and only by doing something like this, in my judgment, will we be realistically in a position to seriously tackle the future health challenges that are out there, despite all the incredible, uh, wonderful words that are being now said about what is going to be done to deal with this current pandemic and its challenge. Because unless, uh, in the spirit of not letting a crisis go to waste, we can approach not only the issue of health, but I'd also throw in climate change. I have no time to elaborate on it here, Alistair. Uh, uh, and certainly as it relates to health, antimicrobial resistance, unless we approach it in this kind of broad context, in my opinion, we will fail to meet uh, the future health. And as we now observe, also economic and financial challenges that we face. <coughs> Let me finish in the last couple of minutes to elaborate further and what is needed to help all of this along in terms of international cooperation. Uh, as I've already said, <clears throat> uh, this is something that is needed at, uh, on many levels uh, to be led by the, uh, the G20. Uh, this is a group that was essentially resurrected <clears throat> from being a conceptual uh, group of countries in 2008 to being actually an effective one. And crucially... <clears throat> and currently, frankly, a little bit more controversial than it was then due to the uh, issues surrounding, and no time to discuss it here, the, 
the differences between democratically run countries and those that are not, such as China in particular. <clears throat> but nonetheless, we cannot solve any of these countries, despite the best intentions uh, of many other individual countries, without this kind of degree of cooperation at the global level. <coughs> Excuse me. Secondly, and something I haven't touched on yet, uh, but in my opinion, uh, there is a much needed uh, and required role for the International Monetary Fund, the body that sits at the center of international economic affairs. The IMF historically has regarded itself as being the experts in macroeconomic management and policy recommendation, but it has understandably, <clears throat> until recent years, shied away from delving into areas where it thinks it has no real expertise. But when you see the kind of colossal economic damage that we have gone through in 2020 and are going through in 2021, and if we don't deal with this satisfactorily soon, we may continue to go through for longer. It is imperative, in my opinion, that the IMF actually chooses or is encouraged uh, to include focusing on the quality of the world's health systems, including for all its member countries, as part of its uh, regular analysis of its member countries' economic policies. And this is an area that I have been pushing with my AML hat on, and it's something that I'm going to be continuing to support Mario and the Commission in pushing for as part of the Monty Commission. Uh, I've talked about uh, much of the rest, <clears throat> uh, and, and let me, uh, given the, the time, uh, Alistair, come to a, a draw it to a close uh, with finishing on my very last comment, because it goes back to where I started, about trying to encourage a world uh, of greater profit with purpose and the circumstances in which this current pandemic has hit us. Uh, it is my uh, experience, having been in the, the role that I was for Goldman Sachs that you described at the start, uh, in the center of the, of the world capitalist economic system, that uh, for far too long, many private uh, actors in the world of international economics and finance have often thought of their job is to maximize profits for their shareholders, and the problem solving has to come from policymakers, uh, including problems uh, that the private financial system and private economic actors play a role in helping create. Crucially, it, it had already started to become the case, partly because of 2008 and the consequences for the world economy and world society that happened since, that this was no longer acceptable. And in trying to move to a more equitable and just form of modern capitalism, it is crucial, in my opinion, that we need to encourage from all business, and this is absolutely critical for the challenge of, uh, of beating climate change, but also for the challenge of beating future pandemics and future challenges like antimicrobial resistance, that all our big uh, and small businesses need to see themselves as part of the solution of these challenges and not something that just governments do and something that they appear and respond to doing once a crisis has happened. And that is the spirit in which the Monty Commission rather beautifully is trying to think about its specific recommendations, <clears throat> including those that we've highlighted today and we'll be coming back to 
uh, to develop further evidence to support as well as new ideas before we finish in, in October. And with, me, um, with that, Alistair, let me stop and hopefully turn it over back to you. Uh, and I look forward to trying to uh, respond to any questions that I may have encouraged to be asked. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim, uh, for a really insightful and very stimulating talk. And not surprisingly, you've uh, stimulated a number of uh, questions. Um, I'll try and uh, go through the questions in kind of subject groups with starting from the highest level and then going back down, I suppose. I mean, one of the questions, uh, Laith and Bali from the LSE uh, kind of talked about um, why there was so much international collaboration, if you like, for the financial crisis and the response to the financial crisis, but there's been less so for the COVID-19 crisis with the maybe the, med the bottom-up collaboration through the medical professions, but less so from the top in terms of governments. And, you know, we've even seen it this week with the vaccine rollout across Europe, for example. And then she asks, can we realistically convince wealthy countries to, in the light of this, reform the WHO uh, moving forward? So that's the first kind of high-level question. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, I think there are probably... Um, I could spend the rest of the evening talking about it, but there's probably uh, three separate uh, issues or, or aspects of trying to give a, a brief answer. So the first one goes back to my starting point, and, and I think partly why uh, I, I was asked to do the AMR review and why I've been uh, uh, approached to be part of the Monty Commission and others with my kind of background too, is quite simply... Uh, and this was both part of uh, the thrill, but also part of the frustration of the AMR review. If I would try and talk to somebody from a finance background about the challenge of antimicrobial resistance, they would often say, what's that got to do with me? Shouldn't you be speaking to the health minister? Uh, and indeed, as I've said, part of the challenge of AMR, uh, our own health minister, uh, Secretary of State Matt Hancock, often describes AMR as the slow burner because it isn't on the 10 o'clock news uh, every day. And as I said, uh, if you put it into the world of finance, and hence why I've now be become such a convert of thinking about it as a macroeconomic uh, issue, to spend $42 billion for the 29 interventions my review uh, recommended to stop the risk of 10 million people a year dying and saving an otherwise loss of 100 trillion is fantastically attractive economics. Uh, but we need to find a mechanism, hence why uh, splitting up government spending into investments and consumption, where, where, where governments and international policymakers can agree to do that without thinking it's impinging on their, their current daily lives as policymakers. Um, and as it relates to the, the COVID-19 uh, challenge, I, I should have touched on this, not least because I'm also heavily involved in this. The WHO uh, enabled the establishment of something I'm sure you're more than familiar with, something called ACT-A, 
of which the, the better known COVAX is one of the three pillars, uh, which requires $35 billion in order to get uh, all the necessary treatments, diagnostics, and crucially vaccines to every part of the world as soon as possible. And as I said on a special OECD call uh, of finance ministers about four weeks ago, I was asked to present the economic case for it. It is probably the biggest no-brainer form of economic stimulus any economic policymaker today uh, can consider uh, actually signing off to. And to put it in a British context, that's uh, probably less than two months' cost of the ongoing amount of money our government is spending just in the UK uh, to, to manage the challenge of COVID, including uh, the COVID, uh, sorry, the furlough scheme. Uh, the second thing to quickly add is, of course, until recently, we had a very different set of international policymakers than we have today. And uh, um, one of the reasons why we came into this crisis with a very different framework is quite candidly is because one of the most important nations in the world in terms of everything and including leadership uh, had its own frankly peculiar reasons to not embrace international established fora and want to go its own way namely the united states luckily in the context of this and here i'm not passing judgments on the domestic merits of one versus the other uh, under president biden Again, emphasizing in the spirit of not letting a crisis go to waste, we have an American government that is eager to reestablish its credentials about being back in the international policymaking space. And I would not only be shocked, but highly disappointed if we didn't have a different approach to that uh, implied by this question uh, by the end of this year, and hopefully uh, as early as in response to the UK's own G7. Which takes me to the very lastly, uh, to mention for my awareness, uh, importantly, in the UK's own role in all of this, the UK coincidentally happens to be the chair of the group of seven uh, countries this year, which is the well-established uh, group of the most uh, uh, large advanced economies. And I'm very sure, not least because I have some discussions with them, uh, that embedding health at the center of international thinking and policy response is something I'm pleased to say the UK is definitely going to be pushing for. Okay, yeah, thanks for that. So um, maybe picking up from some of that response as well and going to Rob Yates's question on uh, with the reference to Scandinavian countries where they, and generally G7 compared to the UK, uh, where they spend more on health financing, do you think that countries should generally spend more on uh, the public financing of healthcare? And I suppose that's related partly to how they spend it and what they spend it on. So yeah. what, what dominates the short-term thinking or why does short-term thinking dominate the funding aspect, whereas the benefits package is generally forgotten and kicked into the long grass? <laughs> This is the, uh, is the is, let's call it the, 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 what now appears as the multi-trillion dollar challenge. And um, again, in the spirit of not letting a crisis go to waste, uh, and here I'll, I'll publicize my, my Chatham House colleague Rob Yates' uh, 
uh, wonderful call for uni universal healthcare coverage. He's right. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm generally well known in the world of economics for thinking about so-called emerging economies. And unless we can embed uh, much better quality health systems across the emerging world, none of these very large, especially the larger populated countries, are ever going to be able to reach their economic potential. Uh, and whether it means per se one should just spend blindly more money on health uh, without thinking it through, I beg to differ. Uh, and one of the areas I think on the Monty Commission we're going to be exploring in quite a lot more detail, including from uh, and with the help of outside specialist experts, is in fact whether if you separate investments in health spending into investment spending as opposed to consumption spending, surprise, surprise, you might find out that more spent more clearly under the umbrella of investment spending will actually reduce uh, the amount of money that needs to be spent on consumption and maintenance spending in the future. So to take uh, a very topical case as it relates to the UK, uh, and of course, sadly, one of the perhaps one of the reasons why we have suffered so much loss of life uh, in the pandemic is due to the uh, levels of obesity that we find in the UK. And if if we instead of having our health departments having to find money to support, uh, for example, a recommendation uh, that we should encourage uh, lower consumption of sugar, high sugar content foods and drinks. If that was delineated in a completely separate uh, item called investment spending, I'm pretty sure that uh, at some years in the future, and certainly at the generation of the future, we would have nothing like the same need to spend on the management of those uh, illness challenges uh, that go with uh, those kind of levels of obesity. And, and, and that's one of many, many examples I could think of. Uh, but certainly, uh, in terms of uh, dealing with the big, reasonably identifiable global interconnected health challenges, such as needing a replenishment pot of money for antibiotics and diagnostics, and of course, to ensuring we have the monies for uh, rolling out the current vaccines and the future vaccines to deal with this and other health things, we need to enable a system for all donor countries in, uh, and emerging countries uh, to be able to spend on these and not think they're threatening the day-to-day -day budget. Uh, one of the emerging countries I'm so strongly associated with because of the one of the BRICS is, of course, India, uh, which is a, a major uh, sufferer of, of, of most well-known infectious diseases. And yet the Indian government rarely spends money in its budgets on trying to meet this challenge domestically. And I often call on them to take the lead and be bolder and try to undertake a budget which, which in itself might guide other countries to thinking about this differently. So, so picking up on that theme, maybe time for two more questions. Um, 
the, but the first one, they're, they're all big questions because it's a big theme, of, obviously, but picking up on your theme that the economic response usually follows the health disaster, as it were, and particularly vaccines uh, as being on both the supply and demand side, the, it raises the issue of externalities and obviously how, as economists would put it, how do you get the value of vaccines embedded into the supply and demand chain? rather than being seen as something where the value runs off somewhere else? <laughs> this is a, a multifaceted question also that I could spend uh, far too long trying to answer. So with the time, I'll try to be particularly brief. It's tough. And it, it goes back to where I finished my formal comments. Uh, and yet again, uh, I, I call on uh, particularly the leading international pharmaceutical companies for themselves to never let a crisis go to waste. Um, and and as much to their often irritation, they, they know me only too well with my AMR hat on, uh, calling for them to think differently. And it is not realistic, for example, for international pharmaceutical companies to think of every different uh, business line as being needed to generate the same kind of profit. Because that's why, for example, many of them have lost the desire to produce antibiotics because they're never going to give the kind of financial returns that they can get from other businesses. But, uh, and the same, to some extent, applies to vaccines. Why is it that so many pharmaceutical companies, thank God they have, have appeared as being capable to respond to this particular pandemic uh, when they had no interest in exploring vaccines before. And I'm pretty sure the answer is they know they're going to get more, more uh, money from governments. And whilst we need to make sure that governments have a pot to do what they need to do, we need to have our business think that these kind of issues are not externalities necessarily and part of the system in which they operate. And it, it's applicable to vaccines and it's applicable to antibiotics. And there are many similar examples when one, one tries to use the same kind of mental approach, obviously, for dealing with climate change. Yeah. Okay, so um, somebody did raise about climate change, but I think that would take us into another hour's debate. So I'm afraid. <laughs> Last question from Vivek Srivastava. He asks, uh, and it's... It sounds flippant, but actually I think it, it helps to put things onto the map as you have done. He asks, could you provide a, a good acronym like you had with BRICS for getting uh, health policy into health economic thinking? And as I say, it sounds flippant, but actually it put the headlights on. That's uh... Uh, it's uh, amusing. I, ne I, I never thought, often when I, I am talking about the, the pure economic issues of BRICS and the emerging world, I invariably get asked what, what next acronym I'm going to create because that one is stamped on my forehead for the rest of my life. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I will also answer back, it isn't flippant, but uh, uh, in the same spirit, um, if we end up with WOHO, uh, One World uh, Health Organization, I think that would have played a pretty powerful role in at least giving us a better chance uh, of dealing with these complex 
cross-border uh, challenges that go between humans and our environments uh, and animals. Uh, and so there's one readily made one. Uh, I think the, the, the Global Public Good Stability Board uh, could, could abbreviate to uh, G, GPSB. Uh, there's another. Yeah. And uh, if, uh, if our ideas can be picked up by uh, the UK uh, G7 hosting, and, and more importantly, because of its inclusion of uh, very large, important emerging nations like China and India and South Africa and or, or many others, uh, if it can be embraced and actually agreed to by the G20, uh, then we will have done our job. Okay, thanks. I, I completely agree with you. I think that if we learn anything out of this, it has to be cooperation wins out and we have to cooperate as a race going forward, a human race going forward for these crises. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, fascinating, really great talk. Uh, you covered a lot of subjects in 40 minutes, which is really difficult to do. I'm sure you'll get emails following up from this. So, um, Thanks very much for delivering our annual lecture this year and um, keep working on the acronyms is all I would say <laughs> to end it. So thank you very much.